0: Because the freedom you want is the freedom to embrace disciplines that are good for you and good for the planetary system that you find yourself within. I want freedom to be a person that isn't a bigot, that isn't a patriarch, that isn't um, greedy. That I want freedom to be the best me I can be, and I don't expect that to be about running everything. I expect it to be about like a certain kind of harmony and this society provides all sorts of freedoms to consume and to amass but freedoms to enter into these disciplines they don't want you to be good
1: these kind of we don't take the time to know what it is to, say, to know how to Welcome to another episode of Tune the Fork. I have the pleasure of hosting and sitting at the feet of artist, author, professor, educator, tonal scientist, Dr. Thomas Stanley. How are you, sir?
0: Brother James, I am so happy to be here with you. Wow, I'm uh, doing great, and um, just you know really appreciate having an opportunity to talk to your community.
1: And I really, uh, I really appreciate that as well. Our, 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 our past crossed through the people of color psychedelic collective. Um, when we were introduced, the idea was to pretty much talk about you know the, the. Um, The presence and benefit of of psychedelics and, you know, people of color community, it's something that I have a lot of experience with. And when I got introduced to you, I was like, there's so much there, there that um, I was extremely fortunate and appreciative of the opportunity. Um, Before we get before we get started. How, how do you typically describe yourself to people when you meet them about your mission and your work?
0: I'm a relic. Oh, no, from, I'm a relic from a land before Reagan. Okay. And I remember perspectives and realities about human sociality that I've actually witnessed pass away. Okay. You know? And I'm not, I'm not an old school kind of guy. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about Afrofuturism, you know, we were doing Afrofuturism before there was such a term, and we were just trying to imagine a space in the future where being black was not a death sentence, was not an area of penalization and marginalization, and so, I, you know, I like to think in terms of that's what I'm helping people do. I'm trying to help migrate them out of history and into something better than history.
1: Now, now a large part of, I feel, your, your work has been inspired through sound, mm-hmm. through, through music and how humans connect with that and the ability for the universe to communicate and guide through, through, those, through those sounds. Am I, am I correct? In, sure. Okay. Sure. Um, and Sun Ra being one of the people who have impacted you significantly.
0: Absolutely. Um, you know, Sun Ra was like, you know, something that happened to me, you know, not like an experience, but like a deflection in whatever the heck my biography might have been without that deflection. Mm. Um, that's, that's what Sun Ra represents. Sound is, um, is interesting. You know, I teach sound, uh, sound art at the um, George Mason University School of Art. Okay. And I emphasize that there's really a difference in how sound permits access of the world versus vision. You know, we're, we're primarily optical animals by design, by evolution, that's, that's primary, how we process visual information. But the thing about sound, which is a close second, is that vision necessarily is always the reflection of photons off the surface of reality whereas what makes sound work is the vibration of the material and the substance of reality that is its interior aspects mm. sound phenomenologically lodges itself in the same internal spaces where thought and reflection and feeling and our truest ideas about ourselves are lodged. So sound always, to me, has opportunities that, that are harder to access. I'm not saying you can't access them with visual media, but are harder to access.
1: Now, to that point, and let me, let me um, I've got two words that I'm going to use that we can play off of. The first is music, and the, 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 the definition, the Webster definition of music is vocal or instrumental sounds combined in such a way as to produce beauty of form, harmony, and expression of emotion. Now, that's the Webster definition of music. Now, the Webster definition of noise is a sound, especially one that is loud or unpleasant, or that causes disturbance. What I find interesting in the definition of those two is the word sound. Mm-hmm. And you referenced sound and its ability. And so to, 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 to hit these places that, you know, visually, people just can't, that visuals just don't reach. So when we're looking at, at, at music and noise, What would you say your definition of those two things are?
0: (laughs) I don't think I have a definition of noise, which is a definition in and of itself. And my definition of music is is very minimal. The sound is worth listening to and its worth is um, beyond the merely informational value that a sound can have. What do I mean by that? If somebody tells you um, that building is burning, get out of it, that's very valuable sound. But if they had held up a piece of paper with the words written on it, it you still would have hustled your way out of the burning building. Mm. So it's, it's, its value is dependent in its information. Whereas to me, music is a sound that is valuable in the way that a, not to be trite, but the way that a beautiful sunset might be valuable, simply as it is. Simply as such. And that includes Ellington, you know. It includes all sorts of, um, you know, really harsh experimentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody like Dream Crusher, maybe, you know. Okay. Um, um And I could go, you know, I could go on and on. Um,
1: but there's subjectivity in that, right?
0: Sure, there's subjectivity in everything, isn't there, you know? And it's interesting that we call it rap music, right? Um, I grew up in the age of rock and roll, and I'm living in the age of hip hop. Okay. And rap music is, rap music that's based around a lyric, around talking, and the music, the sound especially more recently, uh, has tended to support the word. I've seen some exceptions recently. I'm not going to enumerate them, but you know there are times where I'll hear fresh music and I'll get not pessimistic but optimistic about you know, people being creative again and focusing on the yeah. sound. There's some good stuff out there, mm-hmm. and I'm just not going to spend a lot of time plugging people. Understood. Um, but I can remember, just to kind of give you a contrast, we had instrumental hits on the radio in rotation with all the Let's Party songs, Let's Look Make Love songs, all the other stuff that, you know, we're used to being the center of pop music. But we had songs that were just about, oh, that's groovy. That's a nice sound. That's a nice, you know, sound product. I had a woman, I did a lot of lift driving and talked to a lot of people for about three years, and I kind of miss it. It's a real grueling way to make money, but at the same time, it's like, Boy, you know, this random cross-section of humanity steps in and out of your car all day long. And I had this young woman give a really good argument, a a wrong argument, but a good argument about how instrumental music can't mean anything. Like Mm. it's not, what can't mean anything because it doesn't have any words. Well, what does it mean if it has meaning? And it's like, well, it means what you feel. It means what you experience while you're hearing it, while you're reflecting on hearing it. That's what it means. It means everything that's done to you by that set of vibrations. And a person can be predisposed to open their ears to more and more sound products that are worthy of bringing all the way in and allowing to... Uh, disturb and inform your interior state. Most people, however, and this speaks to the way, you know, we just had the Grammys, you know, um, and people come out of the Grammys and they're taking sides and so-and-so got wronged and it's an injustice. It's like, man, it's a lot of money is what it is. Yeah. Very little art and a lot of money. And we can kind of get, like, so far away from what the stuff sounds like and what its possibilities are as, um, as a listening experience. Um, and that's kind of what I'm trying to get people back into doing, listen, you know, maybe, um, maybe there's information around you that is available here that you need, you know, to live and to survive and to thrive, you know. And, and, and,
1: and what I find interesting about the distinction, the individual distinction, the subjective distinction between music and noise is that most of that is informed by culture, by what has already been created, and because that's that's what's creating your musical palette for what you even consider to be music or noise. And that's one of the things I find so interesting about Sun Ra, at least during those, you know, what 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 is perceived to be like the experimental phases of his life, of of his career, because he's actually trying to say, everything we're doing is based in this known lane. What feels good, you know, you're seeking certain chords, you're seeking certain vibrations and frequencies that have generally been associated with music. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's leaving out this segment that has, Culturally been perceived, for lack of a better word, as noise that that has that that has the potential sound art sound art. And. And when you went to your first Sun Ra concert in the early 80s in Wisconsin, I, I read somewhere that. people would leave based on, it was just a lot for them. And Sunrod didn't really see that as like a bad thing. And they would say, okay, now that we got these people out of there, let's, let's, let's work with the people who we got. And and I got the impression from you that you were one of the people who stayed based on those sounds and those connections that there was something there that that, 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 that was curious to you.
0: I'll be honest with you now. I, I talk in, in my book, The Execution of Sun Rock, very frankly about the fact that the first time, the very first time that I went to a Sun Rock concert, there was so much diversity of genre, tone, style, performance elements that even coming from a background where I had already been to can I say dozens of P-Funk shows where they had landed spaceships on stage and Dr. Funkenstein and you know giant skulls smoking spliffs? It wasn't like I was somebody that was inexperienced with extreme musical culture, and yet I I walked just walked out like this, shaking my head and going, "Well, really, what was that? I don't get it." And the thing that I didn't get, which was Sun Ra's gift, was his ability to interleave seamlessly. Seamlessly, music that sounded like it had been dragged out of a science fiction soundtrack, with music that sounded like it had been dragged out of my parents' memories. Jimmy Lunsford, Fletcher Henderson, Duke Ellington, stuff that I recognized, and stuff that legitimately sounded like it had been crafted on the other side of the moon. And he put it in the same set. He didn't give you, okay, well now I'm gonna experiment, I hope this is okay. He just went from where he went wherever he wanted to go, and he dragged you. You know, yeah. And you, you got to deal with the g forces as he drags you along through all this wealth, this wealth of sonic experience.
1: But you didn't leave, though.
0: Um, I walked out of there, and I was like, okay, I'm going to take a minute and figure this out. And it was a minute; it really was before I came back and was like, and then I was hooked. Okay. Then I was. Oh, it's, it, it, you know, it almost like, it's like, you know, when you hear addicts recounting how they lived, it's like, man, it wasn't anything more important on earth than a Sun Rock concert. And if I had, you know, I wasn't a wealthy person. If I had the means to get there, I went. If I had the means to, you know, to nothing else, I, I gotta be there. So, so what was it about his,
1: his approach and use of sound that connected the dots for you to like an alternate future an alternate destiny of what human beings can be and can experience. Cause you you had, to, I feel like you had to, you had to synthesize that, digest it and make it your own, right? The
0: thing about Sunwar I think that is, um, <clears throat> makes his appeal so enduring and broad is that because he knew music so deeply, music, so deeply, he could provide so many different entry points for you. So you might be a bop head and in this set that has, you know, dozens of different kinds of musical expression within the same set, you're waiting for that one bop number that you just think Sunrod does better than anybody else. And you know, you know and you're waiting. And while you're waiting, you're, you're kind of bootstrapping yourself up into these other sounds. Sunrod could get funky. You know, I came out of a thing that was about um, syncopation and loud bass and loud guitar. And sure enough, you can go into Sunrod's catalog and um, there's a track, um, I'll wait for you and extend it. It's, like eight, it's over 18 minutes long and the bass has like, I don't even know who's playing the bass, to be honest with you. It's got some kind of envelope filter on it, and it could be Bootsy Collins, you know? I mean, it's just straight up. So I'm listening for something that I can relate to, somebody else is listening for something they can relate to, and pretty much everybody in the house is gonna find something they can relate to. I'll tell you one thing that's interesting about Sun Ra, and I find it telling. All of these different styles and genres that Sun Ra could integrate real hard to find representations of the truly great black American Christian spiritual tradition. Hmm. It's like he just kind of just steps around it. If you were to include, sometimes I feel like a motherless child, which isn't really a religious song, but often is thought of as a part of that, then maybe I, cause he can, you know, he wears that out, that sunrise feeling of being stranded on, on planet Earth with an impossible task. It's like, thanks a lot. I'm down here with these people. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child, mm-hmm. and I'm supposed to help them. Wow, thanks. So I had this way of talking to the creator as a peer. Mm. That's, a, that's a powerful role model. He didn't like lordism in theology, right? That... Samurai says the obvious. Samra says, really, what kind of supreme being, supreme being, omniscient, omnipotent, pretty much should be the most secure entity conceivable because, after all, it really is God. Now, that's the being that's going to demand of you worship and compulsory obedience and all this other... It's like, well, why lordism? all before me mm-hmm. and i mean such a god would find themselves alienated and lonely and everybody's always asking something of me always oh, oh god it's the only time they show up is they want some. please mommy has cancer please help help yeah. like okay well everybody has cancer everybody has something y'all die every single one of us
1: what do you think his relationship what are your thoughts about his ideas around freedom <laughs> death and peace death. and and how in today's times there's so yeah. much talk about that and and that's one of the things that i feel has shifted the most in me after me digesting some of his, 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 uh, his words and his music that, that's a pursuit that seems futile. Freedom. Mm-hmm. Death. Peace.
0: Death, he came up at a time where both of those words, peace and freedom, right? We're talking the 60s into the 70s were being celebrated as self-evident values, peace, and freedom, and both of those are death words to Sun You know, peace is, you know, you want peace. Cemetery is peaceful, dead, death, death is peaceful. Nothing going on, there's no dynamic, there's no change, there's your peace. Freedom? Freedom is like the first part of a two-part, of the answer to a two-part trick question because the freedom you want is the freedom to embrace disciplines that are good for you and good for the planetary system that you find yourself within. I want freedom to be a person that isn't a bigot, that isn't a patriarch, that isn't um, greedy. That I want freedom to be the best me I can be, and I don't expect that to be about running everything. I expect it to be about like a certain kind of harmony. And this society provides all sorts of freedoms to consume and to amass, but freedoms to enter into these disciplines, they don't want you to be good. They want you to be kind of, you know, the only economy that's growing is the war economy and the vice economy. Mm-hmm. And, the, and somebody told me that the, the as a commodity, cannabis has collapsed. It's like Bitcoin now, you got, you got a closet full of cannabis, great, good for you, good for you, it's not worth anything anymore. You know, so it's like freedom, that's not it, it's about disciplines, it's about, this altered destiny. You know, I, I, I put a lot of emphasis on that term. Um, sometimes he referred to it as your vice-future. Um, I've heard him use it in the past tense, your altered destiny. Um, Sun Ra had an idea that we were doomed, planetarily doomed. We, you know, our way of life was in fact a way of death, and the only door out of this predicament, should we choose to go through it, is, is altered destiny. And altered destiny is not in Sunra's way of relaying it to us something that you can sum up with a prescription of like social policies and platforms it's just it's not that it's not a revolution like a marxist revolution or a black power revolution or a feminist revolution or this revolution or that revolution would be Um, it's more like allowing us to evolve into a nature that we have not visited certainly recently and maybe ever we don't know i mean some of this stuff is cyclical And the front end of the cycle has been obscured from view. We don't know our our earliest history. It's a little murky back there. Agreed. So I love the enthusiasm. See, my job is just to get people. I'm almost like a drug dealer because my idea is to get somebody intrigued about what this could feel like, that they take a bite. And what I'm asking you to take a bite of is the notion that this era of. Precarity, late capitalist, dying empire, um, post-truth, this era is none other than um, the precursor, the birth pains for an opportunity to live in a way that is a lot like coming out of an ice age. Mm. Coming out of just this like Whoa, I had no idea there was so much arable land underneath all those glaciers. I had no idea there was so much calm and non-war and brotherhood and sisterhood and all that just underneath the ice. So kind of what I would encourage people to do and try it a little bit at a time, start chewing away at the ice. Start turning the temperature up. You're there, so I'm talking to somebody that's working, doing their work. Um, But everybody needs to get on board. How many of us does it take to flip this thing? You talk about the, oh, the polls are going to flip. Well, maybe the polls need to flip socially, and maybe we're already a third of the way or two-thirds of the way. I can't tell through that process. But I just think things can be much better. And rather than... There's so much violence, man, at the base of what holds together society, holds together the economy, holds us into this democracy, if I can use the word, this democratic republic. And I try to let people know that as crazy as some of these ideas I am espousing are, I am militantly nonviolent and nonviolently militant, that at the end of the day, all that can be accomplished by applying force, the threat of force, it's been done. And now it's like the challenge is, can you be radical and in a sense destructive? Because an empire that's based on blood, it shouldn't stand, it should fall, it should collapse, it should be over, but I'm not about, you know, I'm not, let's get together and you know get our arms training on, I'm not about that. Symbolic war, myth war. So
1: I agree with everything that you're saying and one of the ch- one of the challenges I feel or one of the opportunities to break through to get to that place is this embracing of the contradiction of what it means to exist and to be human we're when we take self inventory, there are things that we don't like. And generally speaking, the way that we're programmed now, we want to kill or reject things that we don't like, not recognizing that the process of doing that is actually perpetuating it. And so how do I resolve that I make mistakes? that, that I am flawed, that I don't have all of the answers, that I will let people down, that I will lie, that I will tell the truth, that I can be both loving and disheartening at the same time. How do I embrace that all of those things exist within me, which by default means that they exist in other people? And, and, and I feel a part of acknowledging that is embracing the contradiction associated with just being a human. Mm-hmm. And and when we look to try to solve for these problems that we're acknowledging collectively that no one has the answer, but we do have an idea of where. The answer lies is in this vicinity. It's we. I, I can't pinpoint it with precision, mm-hmm. but I know that it's over there. So let's talk about where it is, mm-hmm. how we get there, and leave room for the unknown as we pursue it. And 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 there are too many people I feel who profess to have the answer when. And one of the things I really like about sunrise is that there is this unknown. Mm-hmm. Unknown means you don't know. Mm-hmm. So how can you know about the unknown with this level of, of with this degree of certainty that we profess to have about something? And that's where I feel a lot of the a lot of the conflict comes in because we're not leaving room for that X factor to explore and to and to figure out together because that X, the, solving for that X can be the same for both of us in terms of a truth, but be different on the surface.
0: Jack Jackson played bassoon and percussion. He was the drummer that played that tall cylindrical, um, it was a drum, the ancient infinity Lightningwood drum that had a cartouche on it and Jack actually carved it and played it. And Jack was like real good to me and was really good at helping me understand Sunra, to the extent that like anybody can understand Sunra, you know that's an important place to mm-hmm. put an asterisk. And he said that Sunra had an idea about ignorance that's really different from the way most people view ignorance as something that's, you know, bad and um, a negative, a necessarily negative attribute as ignorance. And he was like, you know, ignorance kind of equalizes us. You can think you know a lot of stuff. But the sum total of what I don't know is about the same as the sum total of what you don't know. Grab a three-year-old off the playground. It's about the same as what they don't know. It's huge what we don't know. It's huge. Within that unknown about the future is every storyline that could progress from this point right now in the present, every timeline that could take us forward is in that unknown, mm-hmm. including, you know, certain death and perishing and you know planetary demise, and including planetary restoration and and. So to the extent that faith is at all important, you know, for me. It just keeps me leaning in the optimistic direction. It's not gonna hurt if something falls apart. Well, if it fell apart, you know, an asteroid wiped out this experiment. Okay, well, I was doing my best right up until the asteroid hit. This is a way of talking about, as black men, our predicament in an imperialist, white supremacist situation that takes us way beyond um, a two-party system that is really about elites, takes us beyond food fights over representation and who gets to play the next Marvel superhero and what color is the mermaid, really? It's like, come on, y'all. It's a recognition that's a logical recognition that this thing, what happened to us was a supreme, it was the result of a supreme application of violence to a people and that trauma, we're carrying it forward. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of us that think somehow you can separate that trauma, that violence, from all the other violence that has historically been applied by humans on other humans. And to me, the opportunity of post-history is the opportunity of living in a time where the clocks don't run on blood. You know, where, where what gets us out of the bed in the morning and pushes us through the day is not in the least bit um, the coercive um, threat that is built into the way we live in these competitive societies. It's not necessarily the case that this great meritocracy that capitalism has given us is fueled by a motivation about getting to the top. We walk over. yeah what happens if you fail in capitalism?
1: Well, every day
0: every day And they're talking about clearing the encampment at McPherson Square. You know they, they killed somebody with a forklift clearing a tent because you know it's unsightly in the land of the free to have your capital have these tent cities of people that failed in capitalism. So where we're headed, if we're headed anywhere that you can believe in, is a world that is framed by something like a a universal basic dignity. We just don't do it. We don't do it. We don't do it. We don't step over people that don't have housing. We get them a house. We don't do it. Cities are violent. The schools are places where you train criminals to be big, you get together, and they, you know, they, mm-hmm. Yeah. oh, really, yeah, you do, oh, wow. Just these, these model years? Okay, got it, they, you know. So how, how, do you, how do you shift the priorities of a society that has the hubris to brag about its wealth, its technical sophistication, its place in the marketplace to look at these failures and to make them as important as the next weapon system. I mean, we have lost so much. Um, mm. I'll say it real specifically like this. We have lost so much as black people to the military industrial complex. We have lost so much in terms of what our schools ought to look like and what our streets ought to look like because money was needed to buy another bomber that's just, man, it's, I mean, these are really nice weapons. <laughs> <laughs> they really, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. you know. These white folks are not spared any expense when it comes to weapons of death, but, you know, what the children have to deal with. How can you have this many hungry children in a nation that's this wealthy?
1: Isn't that a part of what I feel Sunrise is saying, though, when he's saying that the truth is dead, it's not useful anymore, and how how black people have a lot of, we have a lot of truth, but we don't have anything to show for it, and how we need to start focusing on the myth? That... And, and, and using that to build a future off of because I don't and it's one of the things that I struggle with, to be honest, from a history standpoint. Going back, I'm going to find a lot of truths I'm going to find a lot of facts and I need to face them. Right. I need to acknowledge that those things happen. I need to look at it squarely for what it is and then recognize that whatever path I need to take moving forward has to be built on something different. Because it's gone, it's and, and 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 that future has to be, and I and this is one of the things when I say I'm pointing to try to understand the myth that can come out of that because it's not based in anything rigid. It's 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 broader than a truth, mm-hmm. and it's more runway and more landscape for us to build what this future is. And yet, is. it's
0: consequential. Yeah. A myth is a, a thing, th- you know, this, again, this is Jack Jackson interpreting Sun Ra for me. He said, you know, in Sun Ra's calculus, a myth is something whose truth value can't really be nailed down, and yet somehow it's still very consequential. Yeah. It's really hard. I'm gonna get in trouble for this, but it's really hard in terms of archeological evidence the way you would prove the existence of a Julius Caesar or any other historical figure, it's really hard to just prove the existence of a Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But real or not, that mythology has been hugely consequential. Huge. So in a sense, and I got to think, because I try again, there's something in the work itself that humbles you. It'll kind of take the ego and just squish it out. I've got to think that, like, you know, I wasn't the only person following this man around, listening to him backstage, taking this music in and trying to do as much as I can with it. And, you know, I kind of think that I'm just like one guy, one person out there among not many, but several who are trying to do the work of just making the connections, making the connections. Um, It's a... You know, it's kind of like a science project. Like, I'd rather spend my time pursuing and thinking about altered destiny in the here and now and its mythology than worrying about mythologies of the hereafter and pearly gates and eternal damnation. All the cool people are gonna be in hell. Where's Jimi Hendrix gonna be? I wanna be, be where he, okay, exactly. well then I'm going to hell. Okay, cool. All the cool people are gonna be in hell. I wanna be up there with like, what, Mitt Romney? <laughs> Come on. You know. So I'd rather work on mythologies of, you know what? Let's, let's together nonviolently improve this world in the largest way that it's been improved perhaps ever. Um, I You know, I, black, black people's entanglement with Christianity is something I respect because of my own background and yeah. my family. And at the same time, you know i try to find a perch a delicate little perch where i can be quite critical of it because the problem i have with like big book religions which would include the holy quran mm-hmm. and would include the christian book and even the the torah over here it gives very simple very cut and dry almost answers to questions that I think the answering of are the engine that should drive a, a good life forward. Like the pursuit of those answers. What is divinity? I don't know. Yeah. And you're like, oh, no, no, no. He's this tall. He lived here. This is his mama. This is his daddy. This is where he was from. Like, huh? That's, that's the Godhead. That's, that's it? You know? I gotta say something, because we've gone real far And I talk, usually I put my disclaimer right up front. Sun Ra was like as much as Nancy Reagan maybe, a just say no kind of guy. Now from Sun Ra's vantage point, Sun Ra had really strict policies about behavior within his organization that he did not necessarily roll over onto his audience and his fans and the public at large. So from Sun Ra's vantage point, you know, here's a guy that rehearsed his organization 12, 14, 16 hours a day. And in Sun Ra's mind, anything that had to do with drugs had to do with addiction, laziness, unreliability. And it just didn't go with what he was asking of his musicians. It was like, you know, you got a team full of athletes and if one of them wants to smoke a cool before he hits the court. That's just not going to work. Right. Sun Ra did say... Quote, unquote, I am all the drug you'll ever need, which is a powerful statement. I don't want to think that when you hear me pointing towards the revelations, the um, transformations of consciousness that are achievable, achievable through psychedelic practice, that I'm in any way conflating that with my studies of Sun Ra or my attempt to get people to pay more attention to Sun Ra, you know? Like, I wanna make sure that people are, aren't in me seeing those two ideas um, coming together. And, and that's, that's honest, and, and I, I owe that to the subject matter your audience and to Sun Ra. Um, however, <laughs> I, do, I do think that a lot of what made Sun Ra workable for me was the fact that where he was taking you was to a place where consensual limits had been shattered, and I had already been there with Orange Sunshine. You know, I had already been there. I had already kind of come to that crisis of consensual reality, where you realize how much of a grown-up you really have to be to build perceptual reality into a world without all those other people interfering in the process. There's a lot that, and we talk about a, a, a communities, we talk about peoples, we talk about nations, we talk about being an aggrieved group, a marginalized group, and yet there's a lot of work that has to happen at the level of the individual. that's about realizing, and it's a realization, how much space for change and diversity and and transformation your own mind has. And and at a very granular level, that is when you sit in a room with no one else in the room, your perception within that space is ethically charged. Your ability to sit there and take in this new environment is, is not just a pragmatic process, it is a process that is inherently both spiritual and political. And breaking down that consensus, that stranglehold that the group has on the individual's ethical responsibility to see things as they are and build their world out of that. That's a problem. Yeah, That's the problem right there. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah. And I don't know... And I feel like Sun Ra is inviting us to, is giving us an opportunity to understand that the idea, I've been toying with this idea of implementing um, the mathematical, the mathematical, uh, the mathematic concept of X into problem solving in life. Mm -hmm. And recognizing that there are no shortcuts. Whatever the divinity, whatever the path, whatever the process is, is uniquely constructed, whether I can perceive it or not. And the challenge associated with waking up, with healing, with expanding, is the desire to want to impose that onto other people. And there's a balance there that you have to that you have to manage and be mindful of because you have to know that I got here a certain way and I can't just tell somebody what that way is. So even when I share how I got here, I have to leave the X factor present for that person to solve for that in their own Mm -hmm. equation. If I don't, it's not theirs, mm-hmm. it's mine, and they have their own way. And so when we're talking about the individual doing the work in the, in the community around them, offering assistance, it always has to be with the, the, the awareness that that X is present and that that individual has a path and a purpose and ours is really just to help them reveal it for themselves and in their way and then extend the love and the patience associated with helping them helping them get there. Everybody wants a quick fix. They want an answer. They want a TED Talk. They want a book. Mm-hmm. They want all of these things. Tell me the five steps to this, the 10 steps to this. This isn't how it works. <laughs> and, 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 and it's hard to share that with somebody and it's hard to it's hard to be patient with people, you know. Mm-hmm. Quite honestly, you know who who aren't moving in the way and who aren't seeing the dynamics at play in a way that you have seen them for yourselves, right. for yourself rather. That's very good. That's very good. I, I
0: like that a lot
1: because I struggle with that. Like the, my ayahuasca experience. Now I want everybody else to do it. Yeah. I want everybody else to see what I saw and to connect and feel with what I Mm -hmm. felt and Mm -hmm. when I felt it. And and I did a a segment a while back about words Mm -hmm. and it was called wielding words as weapons or swords. Words are just words. However, this is the primary mode with which humans communicate and share information. They're limiting that's the one thing I guarantee got out of the ayahuasca experience. These things, what is being communicated is not, there's a, there's, there are other forms of it. And so as long as we have that as the main um, mode of communicating, it may be sound and, and music and, 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 and tonal things, like there's stuff there too.
0: Dimethyltryptamine, mm. right, that's the active, component, the psychoactive component, that is affecting most of the significant psychological changes in an ayahuasca experience. DMT. Okay, DMT, we now know conclusively, is found in body tissues all the time. Mammalian body tissues all the time. You have some, I have some. What's it doing there? Well, to create the hallucination of reality, this reality, this workable, you can make money with it, reality. You can do all sorts of cool stuff. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to sound like a cynic. You need a certain amount of DMT to hold it together. To do more with it, you need more of what DMT is doing. To do more with it, to see... You know, I, I, I teach in a, in a public uh, university, right? My governor is technically the, the... The governor of Virginia is technically my boss. He signs all my paychecks. And so I'm careful about bringing you know, my values, my perspective into the classroom. Careful meaning you can't lie to your students, but you have to frame things in a way so that they can maybe have a metaphor where they can see what you're talking about. If you want to use see really small things, you use a device, and the device is called a microscope. If it's an electron microscope, you can see really small things, amazingly small things. If you want to see far away, you use some binoculars. If you want to use something really far away, you mount your telescope on a rocket ship and send it out beyond, you know, say, oh, great. So now if I want to see things that are beyond the grasp of language, what do I use? Oh, there are traditions in indigenous societies where they've been work- looking at that. They've been studying that problem while somebody else in another culture has been trying to figure out how to get a more efficient internal gas combustion engine, do you Mm -hmm. understand? Absolutely. So I always like, when I see the indigenous people, and it's like, yeah, he lives in a mud hut, but can you do what he can do? Because he can fly through the night without an airplane, and he knows how to do it. (laughs) Okay, you don't have to believe. I always look at these things when I'm doing them, and I ask myself, what's the best that could happen? What's the best that can happen? I'm here talking. I'm talking to some people I don't know. I have no real real control over anybody hearing it ever. You know, I hope you're popular and everybody hears our little dialogue, but I don't know. The best thing that could happen is one human being, one, just one, hears it and goes, "Yep, I'm on the right path. I'm going to keep going in this direction. I'm not There's a lot of chatter out here that's telling me I'm I'm messing it up. I'm not doing it right. We're doing it like this. Okay, good for y'all. That which survived the dinosaurs was outside the consensus of the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. The dinosaurs were dominant and everything else was literally beneath their feet. The world changed in such a way that highly disfavored the dinosaurs and opened up a lot of space where that which was not dinosaur could thrive and prosper and have a crack at development and evolution. And sometimes I think that's all we're asking for, you know, outside of the matrix of possibilities which accepts as inevitable structures of organization like the nation state having structures of destruction like standing armies and militias and police forces. We just want some space to thrive. Try it, try this. Well, how will you get this and this done? People are basically pretty good and there'll be some problems, but we'll do it another way. We'll figure our way around the problems without inventing police forces and armies. Yeah, there'll be bullies, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Right now, our oppression Is just a part of a gazillion habits of mentality and behavior that we define our identities by. And if you are anxious about giving up the habits, because you know that's that's all I am are my habits, then you're anxious about growing into something else, you know, something that doesn't have these, these oppressions, you know. And I do think that how people think it matters it matters you know because the thought will eventually yield action even if the first evidence of the thought is not an external behavior mm. but it matters and so you 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 hope that there's somebody out there that will see you do your thing about sunrise and alter destiny and think yeah i'll 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 try this i'll keep going in this direction i'm not worried about the group you know the group isn't necessarily right In fact, sometimes the group is tragically
1: wrong. How do you feel you're doing with that in your own personal
0: life? That's a good question that I'm going to, because I really like you and trust you, I'm going to answer as frankly as possible. I come out of a background of cultural nationalism. so You never met me with my dreads. No. And black nationalism, you know, black self-determination theory. I never, never really considered myself in a way that I think a lot of my, my brothers and sisters think it is okay to see oneself as a racist. Like I never, like, you know, there's a lot of reasons to be skeptical of white people based on our historical experience, but I never entertained Cosmologies where there's you know white people over there, and then there's everybody else, and they say, oh, and then we're over here. It's just like you know, you take a, a, a you take a being an entity and try to turn them into a devil, and if you really look at it carefully, there's not much difference between that and turning them into a god. Mm-hmm. You know, it becomes this hugely limiting factor.
1: The process is the same. So,
0: I struggle with the fact that there is a consensus of wokeness. There is this post-George Floyd. Like, I'm like, well, if you call yourself woke, that means you were asleep. I never went to sleep. I, ne- You know, you just noticed that, like, b- b- white people, you know, the cops are murdering black people. You just noticed that. I never was asleep. I never, you know, I never had to suddenly turn and reorient myself towards the struggle and the people. So. Now that I'm talking in a way that is not framed in the language that is common to this black experience of struggle at all, so I feel left out sometimes. I feel like, wow, man, I'm the only like, you know, public intellectual that doesn't get a whole lot of work during February. Because I don't take the party line. I don't take the, you know, like the, I'll tell you, here's, here's the thing. It bothers me to no end that so many black people that think they love black people, think it's cool, to put Harriet Tubman's face on money. It bothers me like you wouldn't believe that people that have read County Cullen and Langston Hughes and they're so steeped in their blackness and their culture don't see that white people are playing a trick on us by taking a hero from us, our hero, not a great American, but our hero, who worked her entire life to take money off of black people's bodies and you're gonna put her on money conceivably forever? And that's an honor? Let's put your mom on some money. Let's, like really, you wanna see some, you don't want to be on, there's nothing honorable about the front of that currency. That currency has done more damage in the world, Mm -hmm. you know? So the fact that there's so many people that just with this representation paradigm think it's the coolest thing, it's like, oh, this, you know, there's something that's slipping there. There's something there that hasn't been... And like you said, sometimes you just got to let people be what they're going to be. You can't change people or interfere in their process. Um, you, you stand in what you think you know and what you have integrity about and then let the mystery unfold because it's not it's out of our hands. You know, to a certain extent, it's out of our hands. It's going it's to unfold, and we'll see.
1: If you could... Um when you when you close your eyes and think about the alter destiny the vice future what does that
0: what does that look like in your mind it's warless it's like a place where the idea that a group of humans would get their killing thing together and organize it and structure it and give it money and go kill some other is like <laughs> what that's the craziest thing I've ever heard of. What? People, who, people would do that? No. It's, um, it's rapeless. It's like, the children aren't safe in their homes? What are you talking about? Really? No, that's not the case. That's not the way we are. It's, um, you know, I got people that say abolish work. And I don't like that because, like, I believe in Kriya. Kriya is work. Kriya, is, that's the definition of Kriya. Kriya is work. And work is life. But jobs, where you trade your sacred time for a paycheck, that should have gone down the toilet a long time ago. For rich people, it already has. Mm. But you know, but work, like waking up every, like when you're a kid, you wake up. If you're a child, and I had a good home. You know, my, I had a good balance of the stuff that, you know it wasn't perfect, but it was good. My parents worked real hard for that. And you would wake up in the morning as a child, just whatever you were doing when you went to sleep, you wanted to pick that up and continue it. You know, you, you had a project, something you were building in your room, something you were studying under a magnifying glass. You wanted to get back into it because of the joy of doing it. I kind of see a future where people have to eat, and gardening feels good. And people can grow their own food, and people that Really are good at it, can grow a surplus and give some to people that want to do something else with that block of time, and I kind of see a thing that is kind of Marxian, mm. in allowing people's abilities to just kind of fit the need. Um, states, I don't think we need them. I don't know what replaces them. That presumes that they're actually doing something other than wasting our money on yeah. war. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, like for me, alter destiny is a bunch of negations of what is. And in that, there's like just room for unbounded human creativity, you know.
1: I think a lot about um, one-to-one interaction,
0: mm-hmm.
1: as a as opposed to like bigger, because I feel like similar to a telescope and a microscope. You're really, what's in one is in the other. It's just the degree with which you can see what's actually taking place. And Tune the Fork is a disruptive content creator that, to produce new paths of thought, speech, and imagery. And I'm really saying that about my own life. I use other people and other, and other opportunities to, to demonstrate that. But it's really about being that, embodying that in my life. And I feel there's so much disconnect between one-to-one interactions that that's the obvious. Mm-hmm. expansion mm-hmm. to cities, to apartment buildings, to states, to countries, to, you know, cause it's, cause that's, that's what's going to propagate. That's, that's mm-hmm. the molecule in the bigger, in the bigger body mm-hmm. is the one-to-one interaction. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to improve how I interact with people, you know, like uh, free radicals, how they extract from the things that are around them. To, mm-hmm. to I, I'm mm-hmm. trying to, I'm trying to take this moment and connect with it as strongly and as deeply as I can. That creates the path for us to do that outside of this. But I feel like it has to start first with what's happening immediately in front of us and immediately inside of us, and. And that's where I feel the bigger structure, the bigger the bigger um, opportunity is. I don't know what happens outside of that, but I but I do know that there are things that I could be doing right in front of me differently that I don't, and that's the responsibility of the individual. I feel um, I leave room. For the fact that we are evolving ED, the ING, and ED is never, we're not done. Like mm-hmm. we're we're going somewhere as a people. Mm-hmm. And I do, even though I don't see it in our actions, even though I don't feel it when I look online and see how people interact with one another. I do feel like, and maybe this is just a representation of how I'm choosing to like live my life and 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 perceive the opportunity to grow and and, and connect around me, but like this isn't it. Like there's there's just no way that this is it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in the cosmic scale, we're a quarter of a blink through this thing, man. And I don't and I don't know how we embrace the ing Mm -hmm. of evolve as opposed to it just being like, this is just it. Good.
0: I try. Like that metaphor about the ice age ending. I try to paint a picture of us being able to not necessarily destined to, but being able to, enter into a period of time, time remains real, history falls away, but enter into a period of time that doesn't feel so much like a plateau, but more like this evolution that's continuing, ongoing, we now feel the acceleration of that. And we can kind of, we're, we're kind of okay with the fact that it's like, yeah, there's, there's no end point. Like you can see way down the road now, and there's a lot of change. We just don't have any idea what can be done with what we, we have no idea. And it's a lot of change, but now, see, the thing about, I kind of, see, I, I felt like what you said was a perfect place to stop, but I got one more little thing, because <laughs> it really was perfect. Um, You know, you are to be credited for preparing yourself really well for this discussion, and preparing your life for something just beautiful, man, and and I wish you the best.
1: Thank you for that.
0: Um, There's a sense in which capitalism and its pretenses of progress, new and improved, is nothing other than a weird reverse kind of time machine to freeze us in place, to pin us in place. Hmm. To keep us from seeing the necessity of this evolutionary arc that you're talking about. I mean, it's been the hardest thing for us to see in our lives. It's like you had to do some work. You didn't, you didn't, you didn't stay on the block to figure it out. You had to go somewhere to figure it out. You had to put some energy into it. You had to beat the bushes to figure it out. Yes. So, that might be the most, like we get so hyped about technology and what's possible with technology. And it's like, okay, but I know you're going whatever it is, no matter how smart it is, no matter how slick it is, I've got to pull out my credit card to use it. And if I don't have to pull out my credit card to pay for it, then I'm the one being sold, a la Facebook. You know, I'm the product. Oh, wow. Oh, joy. So... I, you know, I just hope that like people can see that there's an enthusiasm to things falling apart, they're falling apart, empires in disarray, that we can pivot and you, you know, we're gonna get through this, it's gonna be all right. Yeah. <laughs> in a really marvelous way. But it's not on, you know, don't, don't settle. Let it, you know, let it blossom, there's so much to it.
1: I have one question, one last question. You met Sun Ra.
0: I met Sun Ra. I interviewed him once, and I spent a lot of time, like, really dressing room crashing. And Sun Ra would, like, I didn't let you finish your question, bro. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's okay. We are approaching the 30
1: year anniversary of his passing. And. As a a thinker, as I perceive you to be and and feel you to be, things evolve, like ideas and perspectives change, expand over time. And as we grow and as we understand, what has shifted in your perception of him over the years as we hit this 30-year
0: mark? I, you know, at the risk of sounding, like, disappointingly trite. I had no idea then how large the man was, and now I'm really the man. This being that used this name, Sun Ra, I'm just, now I'm just kind of stunned at um, the productivity of his life, just, just the size of it, the scale of it. There's, there's been more... You know, he released all of these albums when he was on the planet. And since he left the planet, and of course now he can't make any money off of, you know, his creativity, off of his genius, there have been so many more records released. There's a, there's a website, I'll send you a link to it, that um, somebody has beat the bushes and they have found all of these rare live performances of Sun Ra. And some of them are pretty crappy-sounding cassettes, and some of them are pretty clean board mixes. And when you hear, like, you know, I saw a lot of P-Funk shows, and that, that was no slouchy unit. They did amazing things on stage. And yet, you hear Sunrise, like, you know, one set can, to another, it just could be so different. There was so much music to play. Never did the, did the same, might do the same song in four consecutive sets. And it wouldn't sound remotely similar. No, you know, it just again and again. And, you know, and my hunch is that there'll be more stuff the more people look in his direction. Yeah. Really carefully, and you gave me an opportunity to say something that I would be remiss if I did not get on the table. I'm not about fetishizing Sun Ra. I'm not about, I'm not a collector. You know, I have some records, but I'm not a collector. I don't think the point of Sun Ra was to point at him and say, "Oh, look at how exotic and genius and wow, he's so amazing and wild and just out there." I think Sun Ra came to help people by giving us ideas that should be applied. It should be applied here, one to one, like you say, and they should be applied in our work in society. Apply the Sun Ra idea, the you know, uh, apply it, and see where we get.